Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Good evening. That gentle hush has started to filter through the, the theatre, which I'm going to take as my signal to welcome you all here to the National Library this evening. My name is Catherine Favell. I'm Director of Community Outreach here at the Library and it's always wonderful to see people gathering here in our meeting place for events such as this. The National Library of course stands on the land of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples whose culture we recognise as one of the oldest continuing cultures in the world. And I would like to begin this evening by paying my respects to Elders past, present and emerging for caring for this land we're meeting on this evening and which I have the privilege of calling my home. Now, Canberra has often been referred to as a meeting place and, in fact, when I moved here many years ago, I was told that the name Canberra actually meant meeting place in the local Ngunnawal language. That may not actually be true. When I was looking it up again um, yesterday, I re realised that actually it's more often referred to as the valley between two breasts because of the hills. I'm going to stick with meeting place because I like to think that the National Library fulfills that function of providing a place for people to come together, share knowledge, listen and to connect. So it's a great pleasure for us that we're able to provide a place for the Grattan Institute to share its research into some of the big policy issues facing the country. A non-partisan think tank the Institute provides independent, rigorous and practical solutions to some of our most pressing problems. This time last year, Grattan Institute was here to talk about energy and climate policy. But this evening, we're turning our attention to the private health insurance industry, an industry which has changed dramatically over the past few decades. Leading the conversation is the Director of the Health Program at Grattan Institute, Dr Stephen Duckett, an economist Dr Duckett has held operational and policy leadership positions in healthcare in Australia and Canada and he was formerly secretary of what is now known as the Commonwealth Department of Health. Perhaps even more importantly, he's also let me know that he is the nephew of our first national librarian, Sir Harold White, so it's always a great occasion to have a member of that prestigious National Library family in the building. Welcome. Dr Duckett is joined this evening by Joe Rouge, Policy Director at the Com Consumers Health Forum. Joe's been involved in health policy since 1990, working for the Commonwealth and Queensland governments before moving to the non-government sector. Before joining the Consumers Health Forum, she was National Policy Manager for the Council on the Ageing. Please join me in welcoming Stephen Duckett and Joe Rouge to address the question, can private insurance be saved from the jaws of death? Thank, thanks very much. And I too would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Ngunnawal people, on whose unceded land we are meeting today. And uh, I'd also like to uh, pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. <laughs> and because we're talking about health, it's probably important to remember that uh, Indigenous Australians have a life expectancy of about a decade shorter than non-Indigenous Australians today. And so when we hear those acknowledgements of country, they're not something about the past, they're something about the present and the continuing disadvantage uh, that uh, Aboriginal people face. 
I have also heard the meeting place translation, but my I think Canberra actually means hot air rising. And if you if you think about the, the fog and so on, or if you think about the hill a little bit further up there, you can understand why hot air rising might be a better translation. Uh, we're talking tonight about a report that we're issuing tonight, in fact, nine o'clock tonight, uh, Grattan Institute is going to issue a report uh, that I'll talk a lot about today, tonight. And also we're going to be issuing one in a, in a week or so's time uh, on private health insurance. I'm very pleased to have in the audience Christina Nemet, who is, uh, who is one of the co-authors of both of those reports. So uh, that's the front cover of the report. Now, the question was, can private health insurance be saved from the jaws of death? The spoiler alert um, is yes, it can, if you address uh, industry efficiency in a number of different ways. So now you've heard that, you can go home or do something other exciting. Uh, this, this graph is interesting for a number of reasons. It's a typical graph you see uh, about uh, private health insurance prevalence in the country. And you can see the, the steady de decline uh, to about the, the 1990s, mid-1990s, uh, the introduction of lifetime cover here, and then the plateauing and the, uh, the decline uh, in the recent five years, in the last five years. One of the interesting things about this, uh, this graph is that it is completely and utterly misleading, but it is probably the widestly circulated graph about health insurance. Why is it completely and utterly misleading? Because about here, there's a discontinuity in the series. So before that date, uh, that series uh, tracks insurance for a private, uh, health insurance for accommodation in a public hospital. After that date, it tracks all types of health insurance. Uh, and so when you see that uh, graph, you just have to say, this is one of the most interesting uh, graphs you'll ever see because of that uh, discontinuity. Now, of course, uh, the title is about the jaws of death. And there are a number of ways you might describe the jaws of death, but one of them is this graph. And the, the graph is, the bottom graph is average wages. You can see they've basically been constant for the last eight years or so, premiums, health insurance premiums have not been constant. And so families are faced with a choice. Their way, this is in real terms, their wages are more or less constant in real terms, but the demands, they get a bill from health insurance, which has been going up way faster than inflation for every year for the last decade. Although it is true that health insurance premiums are going up less now than they used to, that's like the when did you stop beating your whatever uh, story. They are still going up at least 50% above inflation every year for the last decade. And as a result, people are dropping out. And this graph shows young people are dropping out. And you can see over the last five years again that the number of, you know, the proportion of young people, say 20 to 39, uh, with health insurance is is trailing down, uh, which is uh, adversely affecting the, the risk pool. Now, what's interesting about this graph is that the pattern for young people is slightly different from the pattern for older people. Every age group under 65 is dropping out of health insurance. Every age group above 65 is staying in health insurance or increasing. And this is not a happy sight 
for uh, the health insurers. Uh, you can't see this very well because, uh, because the shading doesn't come through as much as I would have liked. This is a new graph. Um, what we've done here is project forward what's going to happen over the next five years, 10 years, 20 years or so. And again, what you see interestingly is, and there's uncertainty, these are simulations because we have to make certain assumptions, but basically what you see here is that the people under 65 are going to continue to uh, drop out of health insurance. Interestingly, there's also a, a moderate decline in people 65 to 69, but the people over 70 continue in. And again, this is showing that the risk profile of health insurance will continue to get worse and worse and worse over the next couple of decades. And why does this matter? Because there is significant difference in health service use by age. So the current structure of the industry is that there is this more or less a requirement for community rating. When I say more or less, there are some discounts for people under 30 and of course the health, the health insurance companies offer different packages so that younger people on average have pay less for insurance than older people. So the, the structuring of the packages um, are undermining community rating anyway. But, but so we have a community rated premium here, the current average, but the, the expected use is quite, quite different. So for people under about age 50, 55-ish or so, their, their expected use is much lower than the premium they'd pay. And for people over 55 or so, their expected use is much higher than the premium they'd pay. So one of the problems with the so-called community, community rating is the principle that everybody pays the same uh, premium regardless of risk, say age or uh, health status or whatever. And uh, it's unlike your house insurance where you pay different, ra different rates for, for different um, postcodes or likelihood of being burnt out or whatever. But so that's the, that's the actually fair premium and this is the, uh, this is the difference here. And one of, the, one of the consequences is if you're a young person, you say, am I likely to use my health insurance? And the answer is you're probably not. And then you say, the premiums are going up way faster than inflation. And you say, well, should I continue to keep my health insurance? And unlike in the United States, where the alternative to health insurance is bankruptcy, in Australia, the alternative to private health insurance is Medicare. And so it is quite a different equation. And so this is one of the reasons why people are dropping out of health insurance, probably the major reason. Now, the other thing that people are doing is dropping their level of cover. 20 years ago, if you had health insurance, you had health insurance for everything, what we now call gold cover. Most people had, back in 1997, this group of people, more than half, two-thirds, had health insurance with no excess and no exclusions. Another group, this group here, had uh, no exclusions as well. So this group more or less had no exclusions. So the vast majority had no exclusions. That is, were covered for everything. Now, only 16% of the insured population have no excess and no exclusions. 
So what we have seen over the last 20 years is a massive transfer of risk from the insurers to the insured. So in the past, the insurers took all the risk, all the exclusions, all the excess, now almost none of the risk. And so again, there's quite a significant change in the dynamics of the industry uh, shown in this graph. So now uh, about 45% of the population has gold cover, of the insured population has gold cover with or without an excess. Now, what has actually driven the increase in premiums? I said the premiums are going up fast in inflation. Well, over the last decade, the real increase in benefits per member has gone up by $321, $322. And so this is benefits. This is what they've actually paid out. As it turns out, management expenses and profits and so on across the industry are more or less constant over this period. But this is what's driven uh, the increase in payouts to members. Most of it, two-thirds of it, is driven by increased payments to private hospitals or to yeah, private hospitals. And that is principally utilisation changes and to some extent cost increases faster than inflation. About 14 or so percent is driven by payments, increased payments to doctors, and I'll come back to that. About 10% or so is increased payment to for prostheses over the last decade and about another 10% or so is because of increased payments to private patients in public hospitals. This, of course, gets an enormous amount of the, the media interest um, or the industry in interest, but, of course, it's not the main game. So if you are to address the problems of the industry, you probably ought to start here or maybe here or maybe here. Now, as a matter of fact, I think the payments to private patients in public hospitals are hopelessly designed, that is, the design of the payment is such that a state government gets effectively more for admitting a private patient to a public hospital than it gets for admitting a public patient to a public hospital. And my view, that is outrageous and contrary to the design principles of Medicare, but that's what it is. But that's because of government policy. Now, so I think you should start here, maybe there, maybe there. I'll start by talking about medical gaps. This graph shows the proportion of, of, how, of services, how, how these are in-hospital medical services and what doctors charge. About 25% of all services, a service is a, is a Medicare item number, a pathology test or a hip replacement, about 25% of all uh, Services are billed at or below the schedule fee. This is in-hospital services. Another bit are charged up to 25% above the schedule fee. And that's essentially the Veterans Affairs fee, incidentally. So, you know, almost half are charged up to 25%. Another bit are charged up to 50%. Another bit are charged up to twice. Only 7% of all services are billed at more than twice the schedule fee. And that is, roughly speaking, 7% of doctors, or rather 7% of doctors bill more than twice the schedule fee 70% of the time, to be more precise. Now, a handful of services, a handful of doctors. Those handful of services and handful of doctors account for almost 90% of all of the out-of-pocket costs. 
So what we're seeing here is that these out-of-pocket costs, these surprise out-of-pocket costs, the things that annoy patients, that they've contributed to the health insurance forever, and then they go into hospital and end up with this large out-of-pocket bill, is essentially driven by a handful of greedy doctors. And, of course, there are benefits to that, but the benefits to that don't necessarily accrue to patients or the health system. Now, I said we now want to look at hospitals. So, basically, what we know is... This is, this is an example for hip replacements. By and large, this is the length of stay for a, hip a simple hip replacement. If you're interested in these, it's DRGIO3B. Uh, a, a hip replacement without comorbidities or complications is about 5.06 days in public hospitals and about 5.04 days in private hospitals. So the length of stay for, on the face of it, a hip replacement in a public hospital is marginally longer than a hip replacement in a private hospital. But again, this is a trick because there's quite significant difference in the case mix in public and private hospitals. Essentially, private hospitals don't have emergency departments. So essentially, they do no uh, emergency acute hip replacements. All of their hip replacements are planned. That is elective. But if you take urgency into account that takes 0.7 of a day off the equivalent length of stay in public hospitals. And if you take a bit more, if you take age and sex into account, it doesn't change it much. If you take complexity that we haven't previously taken into account, it adds a bit. If you take whether they went discharged home or to a rehab facility, it adds a bit. So the equivalised, once you've taken all of those things into account, what's called within DRG variation, Patients in public hospitals stay almost a day shorter than patients in private hospitals. Now, as it turns out, length of stay and costs are highly correlated. That is, if you know the length of stay, you can predict the costs pretty well. So this suggests that at least for hip replacements, private hospitals are less efficient than public hospitals. If I asked you, is it likely that if you go into a private hospital for a normal delivery of a child, a baby, you'd stay longer in a private hospital than a public hospital? You'd probably all say, yeah, you'd probably stay longer in a private hospital. It's part of the value proposition. Again, the evidence is that. Stay about a day longer in a private hospital. And the same is true when you look at everything. So this looks at uh, all patients... The average length of stay is 2.2 days, 2.3 days in public hospitals, 2.09 in private. But when you take into account the different case mix, public is shorter. Same with overnight patients. In fact, there's about a 9% difference in efficiency between the two sectors. That is, public hospitals are about 9% more efficient than private hospitals. That then leads to the question, well, hang about... If we did something about that, you could probably do something about private health insurance premiums. You can probably drive down premiums if you can increase efficiency. Uh, and you also have differences in practice. This is rehabilitation days. Over the last, 20, over the last decade or so, um, the number of rehabilitation days 
has gone up about 17% in public hospitals over that period. It's more than doubled in private hospitals. Not all of those days are necessary. This is work done by colleagues at the University of Sydney where they looked at different ways of measuring low value or no value care. And if I look at knee arthroscopies, the evidence for um, arthroscopy of the knee for osteoarthritis is pretty weak and uh, private hospitals have a greater proportion of their patients uh, having, having this procedure when the indications don't seem to be there, either if you use a narrow definition of, of necessary or a broader definition of necessary. So what I'm arguing is that with private hospitals, what we're seeing is some of the care is unnecessary. On average, the care is inefficient, and of course, some of the care is both unnecessary and inefficient. And this is the key about where we need to go about trying to drive improvements in the private health sector. Now, the problem we have is that total, pri total private care income equals total private care spending. That is, every dollar of spending is a dollar of someone's income. And there are some altruistic people who say, yes, I can see that uh, I want to have my income reduced to improve efficiency. They may exist, but I'm not entirely sure they're in this room or in Canberra indeed. And one of the issues is the interest of the insurers and the interests of the providers are not the same. The insurers by and large want to reduce spending so they can reduce premiums so they can increase their membership. The doctors and the hospitals and so on want to increase spending because that's their income. And so you end up with a situation where you have what might be called the Escher Triangle or the Penrose Triangle, where you're trying to reconcile what are seemingly irreconcilable interests. So what we argue in the report that's going to be released tonight is that we need to move to a bundled payment system. Rather than paying... Many, many health insurers already pay on the basis of bundles, but their bundles are different between health insurer and health insurer and from contract to contract, and so essentially the of private hospitals are not able to manage to these. But what we're suggesting is there ought to be a bundled payment that the independent hospital pricing authority who sets the bundled payment price for public hospitals should set the bundled price for payment for private hospitals. You bundle the payment. You bundle everything in. Instead of the patient getting a, a separate bill for the prosthesis, for the theatre fee, for the pathologist, the radiologist, the prescriptions and so on, they get a single bundled bill. And phrased differently, the hospital gets a single bundled payment that covers all those things. And in the first instance, we're suggesting the DRG payment, diagnosis-rated group payment, the, the care bundle, uh, should cover all of the hospital-rated things plus pathology and radiology and prescriptions. Then over time, you move to a second stage where you bundle in the prosthesis payment. At the moment, we've got someone in... The, the Minister for Health approves the price for every single separate prosthesis class. And there are 10,000 of those. So the minister is sitting at his desk approving, or rather his delegate is, is approving 10,000 separate prices for prostheses. Now you might say, why do I need 10,000 separate prices for prostheses? Half of these are for orthopaedic prostheses hip replacements, knee replacements, shoulder replacements, ankle replacements, you might say, why do you need separate, you know, dozens, hundreds of separate payments 
for hip, hip uh, prostheses. Anyway, so we're suggesting you eventually bundle in the prosthesis payment and then you bundle in the doctor's payments as well. So you say to the hospital, the doctors negotiate with the hospitals about what fees they're going to charge rather than the patient and then there's a single bundle bill. The patient gets a single bundle bill covering everything, no surprises and probably reduced out-of-pockets. So that's what we're suggesting. Um, it actually may not be feasible to uh, get it to all mesh together, but basically our message is this. There's money to be saved. The way to save it is the way we've reduced, we've improved efficiency in public hospitals, introducing a bundled payment. We can do that over time. We ought to do it over time. And that would save a couple of billion dollars a year and would reduce, reduce premiums by something in the order of 7 to 10%. Uh, so that would be quite a different pattern from what we've seen over the last couple of decades. Thank you very much. And now, Joe Root is going to, from the Consumers Health Forum, is going to make some comments about all of that. It is. Oh, thank you, Stephen. Um, can you hear me? Actually, you probably hear me without a mic, but that's all right. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners and um, the, the and respect their custodianship of the land, and to note that they have not ceded this land. So we are meeting on what has always been and will continues to be Aboriginal land. And thank you for the very good. Acknowledgement of country from Catherine. I think that was lovely. Thank you so much. Um, consumer Health Forum is uh, a consumer body, healthcare, national peak, funded by predominantly by the federal government under their Health Peak Advisory Body Program, so I need to just have that. We try not to let that influence us too much, um, so that's good. Um, private health insurance is probably the thing that Consumer Health Forum gets contacted about the most. It is the big issue for consumers and they come to us about a range of things. I think what Stephen's presentation has shown us is that, you know, we actually are facing a crisis of private health insurance and we, I think at CHF, we're coming to the view that people have only just really woken up to the fact that Medicare, when it was introduced, was a real disruptor. We talk about Uber being a disruptor. We talk about other disruptors. Medicare was a disruptor to the private health system, private and private health insurance. Anybody who's under 40 and has lived in Australia has always lived with Medicare. So they're used to a universal system. They know that if they don't have private health and system, they'll still get their private health they'll still get health cover, they'll still be looked after if they have an emergency. So they don't see the value proposition. And I think that's what Stephen's numbers are showing us, that as, low, as younger people are dropping out, it's because they don't see a value proposition. Anybody who's in that age range knows the pressure. Those of us who have children who are in, those age, in that age range come out of university with a debt, trying to buy, save up for a mortgage, then do you think, and then they say, my daughter said to me, oh, do you think I need to take out private health insurance? And I said, no, don't do it. Put your money into your, put your, money into your deposit for your house first. And then lifetime health cover, 
if you don't do it by the time you're 31, the premium increase for lifetime health cover is a, is a huge disincentive to take it up after that. So you've kind of got this gap that if you miss out, then the price goes up even more. It's already too expensive. You add on 2% a year for every year you don't take it, you start to price it out of the market even further. So, you know, I think that's a key issue. One of the things that people keep saying to us now is that they can't afford to use their private health insurance. And Stephen's touched on that a bit with the medical costs. And we did a major report last year on out-of-pocket costs and medical costs. And even though it is only a very small number who only charge twice the MBS, that can actually be a significant payment for a consumer. And if you add them all up, it becomes... So people telling us, I've got private health insurance, but I can't afford to use it because I can have, I can have my hip replaced in the private system. I've paid my premium, but then I'm stuck with a $5,000 out-of-pocket cost and I just can't afford it. So they don't use it. So we definitely need to do something about out-of-pocket costs, um, about what doctors charge and how we rein that in. And Stephen has suggested that a single bill, um, a bundled payment and single bill would help. When we've raised this with consumers, with patients, their preference is that their doctor is the custodian of that bill. Um, and Stephen and I have had a conversation about this. Um, they have a relationship with the doctor they think the doctor is the one who should be pulling their bill together for them. And one of the things that always comes as a shock to people is when they get all these different bills and they have their, if you take a hip, um, you know, they are hip replacement. They have their surgeon, which they know about, who they've chosen. They then have, might have an assistant surgeon who they didn't know anything about until possibly 10 minutes beforehand. They certainly don't know who it was. They didn't research them. They didn't know anything about them. Then they have an anaesthetist. Then they have somebody else, somebody else, and it all adds up, and people aren't aware of all the different costs. And one of the solutions to the um, out-of-pocket costs that the government is considering is a website with the fees on where medical specialists can publish their fees and help consumers shop around. Well, that will only work if each surgeon says which anaesthetist he's going to use, who his, who his assistant surgeon is, who everybody else is, then the hospital would have to tell you who they have a contract for, for diagnostics and pathology, and then people would have to piece it all together. So whilst a website of fees is helpful, maybe, depending on what it looks like and how it's put, it's not going to solve the problem for people. So the single bill... Um, and, and getting a single bill and it, it is actually going to help consumers significantly. And I guess we haven't put to them uh, the idea of it going to being put in by the hospital, but I think it is an interesting one that maybe they would think about um, doing. And I think, you know, it is difficult for consumers to shop around. People, when, when they're, they're often anxious, particularly if you're looking at cancer, um, you know, we've talked about hips and, and other things, but if somebody's looking at cancer surgery or cancer treatment, they want treatment, they don't have time, they're in an emotional state, they're very vulnerable, they actually aren't in a good place to start shopping around for themselves for a product. It's, it's not a market. They don't have, in, they don't have uh, the same information as the providers, and I think we need to help consumers get that information and give them time to think about it. And 
the Stephen's suggestions about efficient hospitals, I think consumers like sometimes having the long, longer stay for maternity care. It is part of the value proposition. We know that um, many people like the fact that in the private system you may get a longer rehab and in-hospital rehab after having a hip replaced because it's how they have to provide it. So they, can't, so they haven't been innovative about models. You could provide in-home rehabilitation, but there are regula regulations that stop um, provide the insurers funding it, and there are some vested interests such as the private hospitals and some doctors who do not want to see models like that rolled out. Um, so I think it's for the consumer. They, they want to have care at home. They'd like it. It's cheaper. If anything that brings down their premium, they're in favour of. But on the other hand, some of them like the having a bit of a rest and actually book themselves into rehab, I'm told. I'm not quite sure how that works, but rehab doctors tell me it happens all the time. I don't think consumers care about the price of prostheses uh, because they don't understand how it impacts on their bill and on their premium. Um, what they do like is that it, prosthesis, if it's on the prosthesis list, has to be funded by the insurer. So it gives consumers the illusion of choice, but they're not the ones choosing. The doctors are choosing. I think what we would say is we would like the choice of prosthesis to be based on price and quality of the prosthesis and based on evidence that that prosthesis is, is the best one for that person. We know not all healthcare in Australia is evidence-based, so, um, and we think access to registries might help here. Where you could, you know, somebody said to me we should get um, get all the patients to ask their doctor, particularly if they're having something like a hip, is it on the registry? Now most consumers wouldn't even know the registry was, but we can get them to ask the question. Doesn't really matter what the all they have to know is whether the doctor says yes or no, and if they say no, you say well. Maybe I want one that is, or I want one that there's evidence for. So I think prosthesis is one that it's a hard sell for consumers. The reducing waste, I think, and going for low-value care, I think there is a mindset here, and there's the over-treatment, over-diagnosis and reduction of waste argument. Many people um, in Australia, many consumers, are used to wanting more. We, we want more. We want the best. They see on television that somebody has an accident oh, and they go for a scan and they have this and they have that. So that's what people want. And they feel that their private health insurance gives them the right to that, that because you go private, you have somehow more of a right to demand particular sets of services and can, uh, and can expect a different set of services. So, Convincing consumers um, to not have treatment, and if you look at um, prostate cancer, it can be a very, people who work in the field will tell you it can be a very difficult conversation to convince some people, some men, to um, to not have the surgery, to to watch and wait. They don't want to do it because that's they want the testing and then they want the treatment, and they're not convinced that the alternative treatments... So there's a body of work about encouraging people to look at and to question the care that they're getting. And, you know, there is the Choosing Wisely Australia initiative, which is trying to get people to have those conversations. So, you know, overall, I think... <laughs>
private health insurance really isn't demonstrating the value for money for younger people. The issue is that as we move, as we get a less less younger people, more older people, we're actually effectively moving away from community rating because the younger people are just taking themselves out of the pool. So it's pushing up premiums for older people. And so you've got to find a way to get encourage younger people in um, and that has to be to offer them value. And I'm not sure that... I haven't seen much research that actually asks them how they would rate that value, but I think that's a piece of work that needs to be done. So I might leave it at that, Stephen. Thanks. And I'll just mention that um, there's a session at the National Press Club on the uh, 4th of December at 12.30, uh, which is looking at health insurance, and I'll be presenting for eight minutes at that session. So not quite as comprehensive as this. It's now over to you. Um, uh, we've got a roving mic. Um, we did have a roving mic. She's just walked out the door. Uh, well, it's actually a, ro a roving Bridget, to be more precise. Um, but uh, so over to you for any questions. We've got about half an hour or so, a bit more than half an hour for questions. So any questions of either myself or Joe? And our roving mic has disappeared. But if I give you the roving mic, because, uh, oh, no, the roving mic is here. So over there. Um, hello. My question is for Stephen. You mentioned how much of the cost was due to uh, a few practitioners and a few types of services. What are the chances that if the hospital had a bundled um, cost, they would negotiate those prices down with the surgeons or the um, services? So what we're precisely proposing is that hospitals would be allowed to charge more than the bundled payment and they might charge more than the bundled payment because they have better amenity, an extra $100 a day, for example, or because they haven't been able to negotiate the doctor's fees down. But the point would be they have to tell the patient when the patient makes the booking what the total out-of-pocket would be. So with that, we're definitely addressing the surprise bills. The then question is, can we address the high bills? And I think uh, once people know in advance and very clearly in advance what they're going to pay, the hospitals... Our view is the hospitals... Well, I'll, I'll go back one step. There are three people or three groups or four groups that can possibly negotiate the bills that doctors charge. Private health insurers, private hospitals, the doctors themselves or patients. The, by and large, transparency websites and so on make the patients the one responsible for doing the negotiation. The patients have the least power in that relationship. So we said, well... You'd want someone with more power to do that negotiation. So that means either give the bill to the doctor and the reason we could have gone with giving the doctor the bundled bill responsibility, but the problem is that there's no... The doctors have no infrastructure for doing that. You, you basically you want to integrate... 
the clinical accountability and the financial accountability into one source. That is, if you are trying to, uh, you want to improve the quality of care, you want to improve the negotiations, you want to improve the management of the whole experience. And so in our view, the, the group that has the better management capacity for doing that is the private hospital. You could do it to the private health insurers, but they would then have to negotiate with thousands of individual doctors, whereas the private hospitals only have to negotiate with the doctors they have already agreed will work in their hospitals. As we, have, as we move towards a surfeit of specialists, then the power of hospitals will increase vis-a-vis -vis the doctors and that will the hospitals, some hospitals would say, if that is the fee you're going to charge, that might mean patients come, don't come to our hospital, we'd like you to reduce your fees. So that was the thinking behind us, behind uh, what we argued. Um, obviously we can't guarantee that it will force all the fees down, but at least uh, it, what we've done here is identify the scale of the problem. It's not a big problem in our view. Sorry, the out-of-pocket costs are huge, but the number of doctors who are leading to those huge out-of-pockets is small. So that's we think that this would um, put more pressure on. And if those high-charging doctors drop their fees to 50% above the schedule fee, that would save patients $350 million a year. Stephen, can I ask you a question um, that comes up? Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, the, what the doctors often say back to consumers and to us is that, well, we can't give you a firm figure before we do the operation or the procedure because we're not sure what we will find when we do it. So anaesthetist will say, oh, but it might take longer, therefore the bill will be more. So the consumer actually takes the full financial risk if the procedure at the moment, if it takes longer than it was expected, even if you were quoted it, your bill may not be the same as your quote. So how would your system um, solve that problem of locking them into a fee regardless of what was found? I can see there'd be some resistance So to essentially that. the hospital would take the risk. If you think about it, a patient varies a lot and so the doctors will say, look, I can't predict for an individual patient. But the anaesthetist themselves does a lot of patients and the hospital does a lot of patients. And so on average, you can say on average a 75-year-old woman needing a hip replacement who has no diabetes or whatever, on average this is what they're going to look like and this is how long their anaesthetic will last. You can't say that precise patient will be that precise but then you say, well, once you aggregate it up to the hospital level or indeed the anaesthetist level, you should be able to be certain. And as you say at the moment, the patient bears all the risk. Any more questions? One there. And then we'll come over that side. Uh, as a young person that has recently dropped out of the private health insurance market, um, I'm not sure why I should take it up. I don't feel the need to subsidise smokers or the generation that locked me out of the housing market. Um, That's a different program now, that talks about that. <laughs> insurance is always going to be about pooling risk, but is there any scope for separating? I would happily provide, um, you know, do a health check or something to, and, you know, show my age to get lower 
health costs. So um, we did a working paper in the middle of this year which basically said the whole of the history of health insurance is muddled and there hasn't been a rethink of health insurance policy uh, for 20 or so years and the time is right to do that. And one of the issues that has just been carried over because there's been this no rethink is the issue of community rating. And community rating is a, is a sort of a sacred cow to some extent, although, as I said, there's been breaking downs of community ratings over the last few years. And so I think one of the issues you have to think about is, is that very question. Is, has community rating, is its time over? And it's, you know, quite a complex issue because you, yeah, because you've got to be careful that fees don't, premiums don't rise up to the, through the ceiling for people over 55 even though they have locked you out of the housing market. Hi. Um, I've got a, a couple of points. And um, up to, I think, when I was raising a young family, I thought that private health insurance was fantastic, the one that I had, because of all the extras that you get and the subsidy of those extras, the dental, the orthodontics, the the podiatrist and so all the things that can keep a family well, I thought that was really good, you know, the extras. But so I, I, I found that I could sort of pretty much justify that, that fee of about, you know, 500 a month. But now there's only two of us and it's still the same and I'm a bit baffled by why when we're supposed to have our healthcare is supposed to not be biased against age. I thought legally... Um, it was supposed to be universal health care and independent of age. So there are two products in the health insurance industry. One is hospital insurance, which is only covers hospital activity, essentially. And the other is what's called general insurance, sometimes called extras or sometimes called ancillaries. They are two quite separate products and you normally pay two quite separate premiums. Uh, and typically the, insurer, the insurers design or try and they're very keen on the general or the ancillaries because young people and younger families like it and so they get a different risk pool in because of that general insurance. Now, if you think about it, why on earth should taxpayers subsidise general insurance? The whole, there, there are two, uh, there are a couple of arguments for... Uh, subsidies. One is choice, uh, which you have choice to go to a physio whether you have insurance or not, or choice to go to a dentist whether you have insurance or not. And the other is taking demand off the public system. And general insurance doesn't take any demand off the public system at all. So, but so there are two different products. The other way, insurance industry, the health insurance industry is incredibly overregulated, and they are only allowed off a particular types of packages. They can offer a package for singles, they can offer a package for couples or a cap package for families, essentially. And um, what that means is you end up with the experience that you've had, that you end up say, paying the same premium even though you don't have as many people covered. So that's basically part of the regulation. My own view is we should totally deregulate general insurance, but that's a for another day. Don't you think there's a, a, a 
an argument for subsidising private health insurance for dental, given that dental um, treatment is not covered under Medicare? Well, phrased differently, Joe, do I think there should be – do I think it's legitimate for the public purse to subsidise $700 million for dental care for general insurance rather than putting that same $700 million into a program that is universally accept uh, accessible and not um, only, only available for people with private health insurance. So my view is we strongly support a universal dental scheme uh, and part of the way of paying for that might be to take the $700 million that's used to subsidise private health insurance dental and put it into a universal scheme. But again, that's an issue that we covered that issue in our report we issued in March or so of this year on dental care. The age-related discussions that you talked about, we agree with and understand, and we're probably in that older group where we're thinking of dropping out. And one of the reasons we're thinking about dropping out is every year we get a statement saying your health insurance premiums for the next 12 months are going to be this, and you're not going to be covered for this, this and this unless you upgrade. And so we're not getting what we purchased originally and we're paying more money. Yes, exactly. And so that's, you know, what's happened over the last couple of decades is two things more the, the, the coverage, what you're covered for goes down uh, and what, your, uh, what you have to pay up front goes up. And uh, Bill Coote and I did a uh, little piece to, with, with the analogy of the car. So we've got, you know, gold cover is the equivalent of if you have a car accident, all of your car is covered. But if you've got silver covered, the front bumper bar is covered and the side panels are covered and the chassis is covered and the windscreens are covered but nothing else and bronze cover has less and it's really quite an absurd arrangement. It's made even more absurd by the pluses that have been added on top so no one can actually understand and Choice has done some good work on trying to fathom, you know, which policies are the biggest rorts. Now, there was someone up the back. Uh, full confession from Choice. Um, <laughs> I um, thank you for the great data on particularly the costs that consumers face. We've talked a lot about financial costs. The other cost that can really hit people is the time to get treatment. I'm wondering if you can comment on any, um, anything the data shows about um, the interrelationship between perhaps the high-charging doctors, their use in the private system, and the time for treatment that might happen in the public system. Thank you very much for asking that question. So we've done some work in the past, uh, which isn't in this report, where we looked at um, waiting times in the public sector and the proportion of services which were provided in the private sector. So the argument typically is that the private sector takes demand off the public sector. And so if you took that view, you'd say that if there's a higher proportion of orthopaedic surgery done in the um, private sector, then the waiting times in the public sector would be lower. Uh, so we looked at differences across states by specialty, and by and large the reverse is true. The greater the proportion of work that's done in the private sector, the longer the public sector waiting times are. Now that, you can, there are a number of ways of trying to explain that, but one way of trying, the way I like to try and explain it is that orthopaedic surgeons, for example, have a choice of where they spend their time, and if they spend their time in the private sector, they don't have time to spend in the public sector, and so the more time they spend in the private sector, the less time there is in the public sector, and the longer the public sector waiting times are.
There was another one over here somewhere. Thanks very much. Um, I just wanted to ask a question regarding your pro core proposal of moving to like a bundled payment DRG type um, arrangement for, for paying for private procedures. Where is the role for sort of competition between private hospitals for the standard of care in that proposal? I mean, if, if, we, if you're going to move to a system in which, you know, a centralised authority sets the price where does where do the incentives go for for private hospitals to offer a better standard of care? Because at the moment, I mean, one of the, one of the principles behind private health insurance is that you offer people who wish to pay for it a choice, and one of those choices is actually over hospitals that have you know a better reputation for a higher standard of care. That doesn't seem to be sort of included in your approach, and I wonder whether that's a problem for it. Um, so what we did say is that private hospitals can cut, charge a moiety, they can charge more than the standard price and obviously if they are providing better accommodation or better quality, that is one of the justifications you might have for a higher price. What we've also said is we ought to be putting that in the public domain, that is uh, that we ought to be publishing what the adverse event rate is for individual surgeons, for example, as well as for individual hospitals. So at the moment, we have the rhetoric of choice, but the people, the patients have no ability to make an effective choice because they don't know what the complication rates are, what the referral to ICU rates are for the doctors they go to see. And what's interesting, neither do the doctors. They don't know what their comparative performance is. So they can't actually tell the patients, even if they wanted to, what their comparative performance is. So, yes, I'm strongly in favour of more competition, but in order to... that One of the underpinnings of competition is information, and we don't have that information at the moment, and we recommend that we do. And I think consumers just... To, many consumers think that private is better, so that's why they opt for it. But there, as Stephen said, there isn't the evidence, and one of the messages that we're trying to put out at the moment is that a higher fee from your doctor does not necessarily equate to higher quality. And that sounds lovely, but then consumers will come back and say, well, if I can't use price, what can I use to determine quality? And there are no agreed indicators or outcomes and people can't have, you know, there's no trip advisor for doctors or trip advisor for hospitals that people can easily use. And I think if we're going to argue for standard of care and extra payments, then it needs to be based on solid evidence that the care, that the outcome, the health outcomes are actually better. People can pay extra for nicer accommodation, you know, having a flat screen TV, having internet connectivity, all those things, that's a choice issue. But if you're actually saying that it's better care, then you need to have the evidence and consumers need to be told what it is and so that they can make a, a much better uh, informed decision about where to go and who to see. And one of the things we say is we think that's one of the roles for health insurers to tell their members, you know, who who are the better surgeons or the better hospitals in terms of adverse event rates and ICU rates and so on because it's in the interest of the insurance companies to tell, to get their members to go to the people with the lower adverse event rates because that actually is cheaper and it's in the interest of the patient to go to the doctor with the lowest rates because that's actually better. 
So up a bit. Right. No, that's fine. You mentioned about low value care. Can we tip that around to look at value based care then and offer packages that way, as well as your bundle bundle care? Yeah. So it's a good point. Um, so over time, it, one of the critical issues here is how do you measure it? And the slide I showed showed just the four indicators uh, that there are different ways of measuring broad. Broader, broader definition, a narrow definition. Um, we did a report on this a few years ago and, and we ended up with five uh, examples where we could actually definitively measure low value or no value care and another five where we could measure dubious value care, I suppose. Uh, so that report was, I think, about three years ago and we did five and there are now about 79 conditions where you can actually measure that well. Um, so we're, that, that is, we strongly support uh, definitive measure of, of value, you know, trying to incorporate, uh, well, I'll phrase it differently. The health insurers are required by law to pay for everything, whether it's necessary or not, unless it's uh, cosmetic surgery. And so they, their hands are bound. They know that there is dubious value care going on, but there is nothing they can do about it. We think there should be an independent arbiter who says, you know, this, this is dubious value, so have a set of processes which would allow questioning of the care that's going on so you can move to a more value-based payment approach. Um, so it seems like the DRG idea provides a lot of um, certainty for insurers that's not there at the moment. Um, it puts the hospitals in a quite a good position and provided that the quality of care doesn't decrease, it could be a good thing for consumers as well. Have you socialised this idea with the medical community who sort of seem like they maybe have the most to lose um, and what do you expect their reaction to be? So it, it's... Uh, I've spoken to a number of doctors about this, is the short answer. Now, and the, and the, ad, and the attitudes... Very is fair to say. So some doctors say, if if you're one of the doctors in number, you know, charging the fifty percent above the schedule fee, you're effectively not going to be affected by this. It's you know, you'll give your bill to the hospital instead of giving your bill to the patient, and it will be the same bill. So it doesn't it it doesn't affect their incomes. It does affect the nature of the relationship. What is implicit in what we're talking about is more accountability in the system anyway. So at the moment, there's very little accountability and we end up with the problem of not being able to have competition because there's not good information about quality and so on. So we're trying to bring into the private sector stronger accountability for quality price that we've seen in the public sector. And that's where we're going. But as I said... It uh, and this, uh, yeah, their attitudes, different attitudes about uh, accountability as well. Can you just take a step back from your maybe the slide before the very first one, and just talk about uh, the have you considered the need to prop up or intervene in the private sector rather than just let it go? So. Um, this report is all about trying to improve the efficiency of the private hospital medical market. 
And that is in the interest of the economy, whether or not you have any form of health insurance or whether health insurance is subsidised. No, that's not quite true. But, but basically, uh, often economists and politicians talk about trying to improve productivity as being good for the economy as a whole. And this is about trying to improve the productivity of the private hospital market. And it's good, whatever your views about health insurance, it is a good thing to do that. The question about, so as I said, regardless of what you think about health insurance, and it comes back to what something Joe said earlier about you might think your the value proposition of health insurance is a more relaxed approach to length of stay. I can stay an extra day. That is true, but then the question, and that is a valid choice for people to make, but should that choice be subsidised by other taxpayers or by other members of health insurance funds? And that's a quite different, when you phrase it that way, you think, why should I have health insurance? Why should I subsidise someone's extra day of stay when it's not necessary? And, you know, that's a, a very interesting question. But anyway, so this report is all about improving productivity, improving the efficiency of an important industry, independent of what you think about health insurance. There's another question that you rightly ask about, is this an industry that's worth saving? You know, can you save health insurance from the jaws of death? The question, obviously, some people would ask is, should you save health insurance from the jaws, or should you save private health care from the jaws of death? And that's a different question. Um, which is much, much more complex and probably not able to be answered in this brief time. But we will be turning our minds to that. We've got a few more minutes for questions. So could anybody who's got a question put up your hand so I can just make one down there? Any others? That's good. Okay. I'll declare a vested interest because I'm, a, amongst other things, I'm a Tai Chi instructor. But broadening this beyond the medical care of people who have got sick, got ill, need attention. Do you see a role for private health insurance in promoting amongst their members, subsidising amongst their members, preventive measures, exercise, dietary, all this sort of stuff that might actually stop people getting sick and therefore reduce expenditure? So that's a really good question because at the moment the government policy, which is a view that I support, is that public funds should only be invested in things for which there is an evidence base. Now they apply that to general insurance but they don't apply it to hospital insurance. But So they applied it to general insurance and then took a number of things off the, the things that are because there is a public subsidy. Now if there were not a public subsidy would I care whether the health insurers design product products which included Tai Chi and exercise and running shoes? And I think that would be a good idea, actually, because why shouldn't a company be allowed if people are prepared to pay for it and they, they think they're getting... and the person thinks they're getting value for money and there's no public subsidy, why shouldn't you let them do it? And I think that's what should happen. That's my question comes from... Some 60 years I've been paying into the first army and then defence health benefit scheme. And so my question really is, in some ways, when I look at 
any form of insurance like Defence Health, where they are not for profit, shouldn't they be regarded as better than an insurance health scheme which is based on shareholders' profit? So I'd like to hear from you, roughly, I don't know, how many health insurers there are and how many are large compared, say, to the four banks. Is there any equivalent of size in the industry? So um, the top five health insurers cover 80... I'm looking at Christina who did all this work. The top five health insurers cover 80% of the market. And of those top five health insurers, three are for profit, Bupa, Medibank and NIB, and they cover about 60-ish percent of the market. So we've, And we've moved over time from an industry which was more or less entirely not-for-profit to an industry which is majority for-profit. There's another piece. Is my number's right? I think they are. So, the, so there has been a shift. We looked at um, whether... Th th there, there are a number of ways you can look at, answer your question. One is, uh, does it appear that members are getting better value for money? Sorry. Let's say you want to measure value for money in terms of what proportion of your premium do you get back? So the benefit to premium ratio or what's the proportion of management expenses and profit and so on. And it's not clear that the for-profit funds are worse than the not-for-profit funds on that measure. The for-profit funds would argue that they're cleverer, basically, than the not-for-profit funds. And because they're cleverer, they do more for the members with the that they're able the, the the fact that they are rewarded through profit means they're more clever then they do better work and therefore the members get a better deal um, I think there's no evidence of that whatsoever but that's that's their argument to declare an interest I have insurance with a for-profit fund that my daughter tells me tells me is a dud but um, but anyway there you go any other questions anybody want to add a question thank you very much Catherine. Thank you very much and thank you all for your questions this evening. If ever there was a night where I was glad to be working in a library, not in health policy, I think tonight is it. I still don't know whether I should be jumping out of my fund or perhaps into a not-for-profit fund, but I am particularly blown away by the statistic of the, the $700 million subsidy to dental care um, through our private healthcare system. That um, That's quite an extraordinary figure. Thank you very much for your questions and for coming tonight and engaging with the conversation so brilliantly. Would you please join me though in thanking Stephen and Joe for leading us through this minefield that is private health insurance. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate.